Today's conversation is with Dr. Amit Shetty, a FASM with an interest in systems management, medical administration, and clinical research. Our conversation touches on many interesting points and certainly gave me a lot to think about for my own career. I hope you find it as inspirational as I did. I'm interested to maybe unpack this attitude around medical administration and why do you think it's so vilified? Why is Australia so different when it comes to other health systems? You obviously interact with other health systems having done so much study overseas. And you obviously interact with professionals who within the same space as you who work in different countries. What's the barrier? Is it an attitude problem or is it a systems issue? Obviously, it's a combination of both often. I think one thing to clarify there is medical administration is different to executive management. Traditionally, one of the reasons where in Australia, we've got FRACMA as a separate group, administration, medical administrators. And traditionally, most FRACMA graduates have ended up in DMS and DCG roles. And they have traditionally medical administration role, not executive management roles. Now, I don't know about FRACMA and what is involved in it. I'm sure it's probably almost like an MBA because there are some really successful FRACMAs out there. I think historically, when you look at it, a lot of the times people who chose to do those management degrees usually used to be first, second year residents, then going into and doing a fellowship as an administrator rather than a dual fellowship, which is like, you know, now you've got a lot of people doing it. You've got a FACMA and a FRACMA where people are fellowships or fellowship of GP or fellowship of ED, and then they've gone and done FRACMA. So that gives you much more credibility. And I think one of those key barriers there has been credibility. One of the things I find when I do a lot of my meetings with a lot of senior clinicians across the state around lots of management, you know, as you know, I was doing all the COVID community programs as well, is that when you have a FACEM and a PhD and an MBA behind your title, unfortunately, medical hierarchy is a lot about credibility, skin in the game, credibility, and uh, runs on the scoreboard. So yeah. I think that has been one of the things in Australia. And once you're there, like I said, I highlighted to you that you know, the director general for Queensland currently is an AD physician. Um, mm-hmm. The deputy director general in Tasmania is an AD physician. So there are people who are doing it. It is changing. But I think in the past, that, like I said, there were two separate views. One was within the medical fraternity, the ones who took up medical administration usually want dual fellows. Yeah. The second part is from the outer end, usually because they were doing DCG, DMS role, they were not considered to be mainly executive. So, you know, there is a slight difference between administration. You, you can do administration within your AD as a head of department or a head of stream. But executive management, management of health, hospital settings and across is slightly broader than that. It's like running yeah. a business. Yeah, it's interesting that analogy that you use when it comes to um, running a department and then running a business. Again, it's a recent lesson that I've learned and I'm becoming more aware of the financial side of things. And I think it's a bit of a dirty word when it's framed in that way, purely because I think we view the Australian health system as being free and accessible to all. And therefore, we kind of abdicate that idea of thinking about the cost of things. I mean, I've always been very open about costs of healthcare because I think what we forget is even though we are a public organization, we are funded through tax funded dollars. And if we end up spending 40% of the GDP, that is money coming out of education, coming out of, you know, uh, welfare, coming out of other places. So it is amongst amongst ourselves to be efficient enough, because if it's not, when we face deficit situations like we do now, and if you're not efficient, the people who lose out is ourselves. 
there are two things here one is about the cost of healthcare and the second is the funding of healthcare and i think one of the key challenges is to to understand those two things when you run a business is what is the cost of me delivering the care and how much am i getting paid for it and the efficiency gap is what you then deliver and we all know better care is cheaper and it's not because it's cheaper because you are delivering a cheap level of care but it's because even if you're efficient and your costs are low generally the quality is high and safety outcomes are better and as soon as you have poor quality outcomes and worse safety outcomes the cost goes up because as soon as you have complications your cost goes up as well and the way the australian health system is funded based on activity you will probably potentially get the same amount of money if you are a 20 year old ami with no complications versus 20 year old ami with six complications you know the length of stay yeah. and the efficiency is going to hurt you if you don't do the costings right now the big challenge for us by actually ignoring that side and saying that you know like you highlighted is that oh, no, it's a dirty word is that what we end up doing is pushing the costs of the system very high and that comes out from the back end and you don't have enough beds because organization yeah. is not going to pull out money from emergency care which is great but is that the best use of our taxpayers dollars and if we are going to keep complaining that we need more beds in the back we really need to work together to make sure that we can afford those beds in the back as well i've become more aware of the ecosystem of the hospital it's hard to blame the emergency department administrators because you're dealing with a very burnt out workforce and sometimes to motivate people setting up an adversarial relationship can motivate people and i think it's unhealthy and i don't think it serves the system well and it certainly doesn't lead into what you were saying about how we should take ownership for the performance of the system rather than the performance of our individual selves and our individual department and how that question is sometimes bigger than that it's so interesting that you mention also about your research interests and how all of this seems very interlinked and you also mentioned your sort of registrar career and how it was 15 years almost of clinical practice in a registrar role Was it scary to make that leap? What gave you the confidence? What happened in your thought process to make you think, well, I need to move somewhere. I need to do something else. Well, I come from a business family, you know, and I'm the only son of a business family. So in my head, I would always look at processes in an efficient and efficiency and a cost level manner. So I've always looked at things that way. and that's why even as a registrar even though i was a registrar at the front of house model of care i implemented that we got 4.5 million dollars recurrent funding to implement that at westmead to so the safety zone which we has created you know about 14 15 years ago i had done it as a registrar the reason i stepped up from a registrar was because for me I, i was already doing a lot of research i was already doing a lot of the administrative models of care bits as a registrar and i think if you can ask the colleagues like daniel and others they they probably point out that i probably was working as a junior staff specialist for the last 3 or 4 years of my registrar practice in any case just not getting paid for it but the reason i took the step up was not because i couldn't do it or was afraid to do so it was because of my kid was on the way so i had to afford yeah, to yeah. pay the bills otherwise i think i would have been just jolly would be happy just keep going the way i was going and think inherently and that's you know inherently you are a person who looks at data and gets it or you are one who doesn't and you have to apply yourself a lot so i think in my background i've always been a quite analytical and yeah. that's why i've had a data approach and when when i had to do the sepsis pathway implementation at westmead i decided to implement it as a you know registry and then using that registry to do a lot of md related projects and complete my phd based on a lot of those projects in the publication so 
when I look backwards now on those things, you know, I did my sepsis algorithm kind of work. We worked with Narain, built those sepsis alert things, and in parallel did all the administrative bits. And that led me to working as a clinical director at eHealth two days a week while I was working as the hospital and home director two days a week. And again, in eHealth set up, I did a few really great pilots around automated safety monitoring, transfer of clinical information across systems. And also led a few quality safety incident inquiries for the state for sepsis. And that's how I got exposed to a lot of things up the top and got through it to the ministry. And I always say I'm probably the most lucky research guy out there because I finished my PhD in 2020 and got to implement the similar algorithm to do the COVID screening and risk stratification for the state. I mean, you, you usually have a dream for having like 20 years of postdoctoral to be able to do something like that. But I was able yeah. to luckily have that impact across Indian and, and you know, I got the premier's nomination for that work and also the Nisat Wills Health Award for that. So at the core of it, how they are interlinked is that analytical approach and that EI for data. That was the driver for me to build those skills. You don't want to be doing something which you don't like just because you're doing it to escape something else. Yes. You know, not all of us can be great administrators or managers or, um, you know, or you can just have a goal of becoming a director and staying there for 20 years. That's fine. As long as you're happy with what your trajectory looks like. So like you said, people may not understand these concepts when they are in the second or third year of their advanced training. But I think things are getting different. A lot of our staff now are postgrad medical. They are well into their 30s by the time you know, when we were doing it, we were in the late yeah. 20s, finishing our fellowships, you know, so yeah. it is slightly different now. But I think what? people have started looking at their careers that way. Were you a postgrad? No, no, no I, I did my undergrad in Bombay yeah. medicine. Then I came here as a second year, third year resident, but then I had done anesthetics and um, ICU back in India. I got exemption for my provisional training. But I didn't do my primaries for like three years. That just sat down. <laughs> yeah. But again, those days we used to have five star specialist we used to have one registrar at night and 60 70 patients and there was no concept of mentoring don't think until the end of second year that someone turned around and told me oh you know you have to do your primaries I said, oh, okay, what's that? <laughs> and even then things are much more structured now but also i think when we do our registrar training for our things we should be looking at inviting business experts from outside to present things around how they run a business. What does it take to manage workforce? What is it that yeah. we really need to do things you know, differently? Because I think those are the key skills which will set us apart to become a more efficient, not what just is. single work, yeah, not mm -hmm. just single patient things. And it's more about getting more people incubated with similar mindsets because then yeah. your work becomes easier when you do try to do change management. For our listeners, I should probably mention that I worked as your SRMO, I'm not sure if you remember, for yeah, about yeah. a year before you transitioned your role. And even my recollection of you from then, but also my interactions with you since, you seem like someone who is very good at establishing social and professional relationships and building on those relationships to then manifest something constructive that I think both parties are very excited to be involved in. And if I had to, just from someone looking from the outside, comment on something that I personally would like to emulate from you, it would be that particular skill. And I wonder what you think about that comment, but also if you do agree with what I said, how you maybe have worked on that, because that's something that I struggle with just on a personal level. Yeah. I'm very bad at collaboration and I'm trying to actively improve. And I'd be interested to know what your advice would be. Thanks for that compliment, you know, and when I look back, yes, now I've got research funding grants, but I don't have time to do it. 
a lot of the things that I've delivered to date and even now with the ministry and even now with those COVID programs, it's been with a team of one or two people, three people, a lot of collaboration and picking on, getting people aligned on what is that needs to be delivered. But going back, it goes back to that leadership skill thing, which I talked about, you know, you when you finish up your FASM training, you might be a great clinician, a great clinical leader, and you might be able to do six trauma bays at once and coordinate a massive disaster zone. But that only is one type of leadership, which is a directive type of leadership, because you can, you know, yes, you might have a psychological safety, you have to do all the other things so that your team is working, functioning very well. Uh, but I would say not easier, but it is a more structured way because everyone is already aligned towards a single goal. I'll give you an example. We had an emerging leaders program at Western Sydney 15 years ago, and a part of that was the 360s feedback. In the 360 feedback, and I would advise anyone wanting to do get into leadership to get that, is that they send anonymous surveys to everyone around you, your subordinates, your peers, your managers, your uh, next manager, line manager, all of them. I had fours and fives when it came to students, fives, fours for my peers, threes and twos when it came for the exec managers and line managers. When I sat down with, the, fortunately, I had a great psychologist who went through the findings with me and she asked me, so what's going on here? How do you approach these meetings? My approach to meetings was when I went to students, I would be very open, very teaching, very collaborative, asking them to, you know, because it was more of a giving and a giving relationship. And then when you go into uh, your peers, it's almost like a sharing relationship. But as soon as you went to the managers out of department, it was more like a adversarial, which was almost like, well, you should know all of this. You are a manager. I don't need to teach you or tell you anything. It was more of a close shop. I'm not going to tell you anything kind of approach. And I think collaboration starts with you being very open and actually going into every meeting with eyes open because you usually come back learning so much more by getting the right insight from the other party. And I think once I started doing that, I found, you know, like all those sepsis work we did with infectious diseases teams, uh, all the other bits we've done to date with all the other teams has been because you enter those day-to-day conversations with the view of equal or even learning approach. So it's a different leadership style. Maybe there is something inherent, but also something that you can build. And it doesn't mean the ones and twos can't become fours and fives. You really have to firstly make yourself vulnerable and actually open up and understand where your gaps are. So yeah. just like how you build your hard skills by taking courses, mm-hmm. you have to work on your soft skills and open up on those things as well. I think that's a really good point. Illustrated that with your own postgraduate efforts in terms of your ongoing education. What drives you now to continue? I mean, you're a very senior clinician and obviously quite an experienced administrator. You probably got all of your experience truncated quite significantly during COVID. You sounded like you were a very busy man. Where are you aligning yourself to? What is your North Star? Like, where are you headed towards in terms of all of your efforts? How are you looking back at what you're doing and looking around you at what you're doing and concentrating your efforts because I'm a bit scatterbrained and so I'm interested to know how you find your sense of direction. It is hard. Uh, It does take some while. I would say one thing, always have more than one or two North Stars because, you know, I know people say always focus. doesn't mean it has to be polar opposites, but they're closely related. The reason why when you look at people who do well, do well is because one, there are the very focused, very sharp single ones 
and then there are ones who are scatterbrained but they've got lots of different networks and a lot of different things where they get stimulation and cross pollination of ideas from for me as i said in the background it's always been about efficiency and actually getting better outcomes at a better cost so that has always been my driver when people ask me who do you work for i've always said i work for the people of new south wales as a clinician as a doctor if you have that as your north star and with the view that you do have to think about costs because eventually that dollar is coming from the patient's tax money you actually then start thinking okay how can we get the better outcomes for these people who i choose to serve and how do i do it so currently i'm doing a single front door project where we planning to have a setup Uh, similar to NHS 111 hopefully in the next year we started working on it in the next couple of years we'll have a new south wales 222 number for everyone who needs ambulance calls 000 or 222 for everything else and we can connect them to virtual care we're already doing a lot of that and statewide virtual care things and i think other thing in that as always i've, I've learned is not to after a period of burnout few years ago um, as a full time clinician is that you don't have to do everything yourself and if your value proposition is that i want the best outcomes then a lot of times you just go with the outcomes of having to lead everything but also just add value to everything that comes across your table yeah that's a good way of looking at it you mentioned burnout i would love to talk about that just for a second because it's not that i don't believe in burnout i believe in it i sometimes wonder that everyone's experience of burnout is slightly different and when people ask me about my own experience i don't even really know if i've been burnt out but i could mainly because i don't know what people are asking yeah. so whenever anyone volunteers that experience i sometimes ask them what that was like for them so what do you mean one of the things and this goes back to that uh, comment i made about the north star as well so burnout exactly like you said can mean different things to different people but i think at the core of it it means you lose your motivation to do the things that you love to do before and i think the most common scenario in ed is where you find jaded clinicians disconnected from their patients displaying behaviors which they would have themselves when they look into the mirror go oh my god what am i doing yeah. so for me the eye opening moment was i don't know if you notice i'd never consult about my patients i always like to see my patients so if a registrar no matter how senior they are asks me even even if a colleague star specialist asks me an opinion about a patient i actually prefer going and seeing the patients and then making my judgment based on that i did two shifts where i actually didn't leave the workstation i actually consulted and that, that's when i realized that oh, okay this is not healthy something's not right because i think if you are losing the passion to do what you love to do most if that's not burn out i don't know what is if you're waking up in the morning dreading to go to work but you did love to do it then that's burnout mm-hmm. that's how i define it if you're struggling to get through a shift going ah walking back at 2 o'clock and not returning from your office to the floor between 2 and 6 o'clock that's burnout because yeah. it doesn't stimulate you anymore and i think one of the reasons why that is is because a you link yourself to a desired outcome you're working for and as we know in ed a lot of times none of those things are under our control and that's why i like that if you decide that there is something you want to do and you want to do with passion and passion and burnout are very closely linked because if the higher the passion the more likely you'll burn out and f- fall yeah. if you if your outcomes that you're working for aren't delivered so that's how i define it and i think you know yeah. for me it was the point where maybe i was just working too hard i was trying to get a lot of things done in ed with models of care and things weren't going in the direction i thought it should be going yeah. and that's probably one of the reasons i 
felt that way. Thanks for that. That's a very good insight. I did want to just jump back a little bit because you have some really unique thoughts on leadership. That's another area in my registrar training that I really needed to work on myself. I had to concertedly work on my team leadership skills. I'm a very introverted person and I had a great fear of public speaking and all of those things. And those are the things, obstacles that I personally had to overcome during my registrar training when it came into that directive leadership role. But from what you're telling me, there are at least two types of leadership that maybe manifest themselves. And there's that directive style and that or more collaborative style, which you say, and I agree with you in my limited experience in these areas, that probably helps instill a more systemic change and probably provides a better outcome. Do you think we're fundamentally incorrect in maybe taking that directive style too aggressively, even with our patients in the ED? Do you think there's a role to bring the collaborative style in? I almost believe the term leader is becoming more and more obsolete as we move into team environments because the leader term almost lends itself to that directive leadership style. In literature, there are almost five or even six types of leadership, which, you know, the first one is directive, the second one is collaborative, then is this inspiring type where you actually inspire the vision and you just guide them. The other one is a servant leadership where you actually almost work as a subordinate and you're supporting most of the team up ahead. And I can't remember the other names. And I think each one of those, you need a mix of those in every situation and not just one type of leadership at any given point. Even a pure directive leadership in the clinical setting, in a trauma setting, may not be that bad unless it's not in the negative sense, So, which means the team still has a sense of psychological safety to be able to turn around and tell you when things are going wrong, be able to pick on the leader and say, look, you're going in the wrong direction. So I think there is directive leadership and there is dictatorial leadership. So they're two different things. So if you are dictatorial and um, no one's there watching your back, uh, it's likely to fail in clinical settings. You know, I've got a great example where I've done that and giving the wrong dose to a patient because... I had an intern pulling on me on the back saying, oh, hold on, hold on. And I didn't, I just, I was like, oh, it's just an intern, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that, you know, and you learn from those lessons and realize that I think key to any type of leadership is you still have to have your eyes and ears open, ears motion. Mm-hmm. Team needs to feel safe to be able to escalate any issues with you. It sounds like almost a certain element of humility is required in those sort of contexts. That's something that I've reflected on clinically, I think, you know, and the, the nurses at Westmead are great in that aspect. I think they taught me that lesson first and foremost when I was a junior. And I think you sort of describe something similar when you talk about being open in those large conversations that sort of encompass system-wide changes. The other thing that I wanted to ask you, and I think it's a bit of an existential question. I'm like knee deep in the system. I work you know, maybe three days a week clinically. I do a lot of non-clinical work, which I love and I'm very passionate about and very fortunate to be able to partake in. But the going narrative in the departments that I work in is that the system is very inflexible and that change is a distant concept. And then in my brief interactions with you, I hear about all this dynamic change that's happening in the background. Why do you think there's such a big disconnect? You seem like someone who's filled with such hope about where the system is going and how active effort can make a real change, a real impactful change. And in the trenches where I am three days a week, I find that concept hard to grasp sometimes. Uh, And not that I don't believe in it, just that, you know, sometimes it feels very far away. And I come across that all the time. And even, like I said, on the college committees where I am, 
the some college might ask the college for a statement on urgent care services and two pages of the document that college comes up with is about access block and i said hold on a second i know access block is the thing number one thing for emergency departments but they're talking about urgent care services and we are healthcare leaders we should be talking about that issue as such rather than just you know the one thing you know when i was in ed i was no different i you know i've got this analogy that we are like frogs in a pond and all we do is we see in the insides of our pond i think i was very fortunate to take on that hospital in the home director role which exposed me to things outside of ed to realize ah oh. and then you know we get six ambulances come in and we go ah oh, these ambulances what are they doing here why are they coming here and then you go back and you start working with ambulance and look at their dashboard and go oh they only bring 30% of patients to the hospital the rest of them are staying home they're doing their vitriple c i think a lot of that is because of the insight and also because the way we have trained our clinicians in ed as well there is a very us and them mentality which sets you up to be ignorant to the changes around you and also to not have a broader view of emergency medicine has led us to be emergency department physicians people ask me why work why work other people of new south wales when they ask how do you define emergency medicine i define it through the patient's eyes for patient a cut finger avel's nail or strangulation or a car accident they are all emergencies they do not define it as where should i go if i get a cut finger they don't know the issue therein is as leaders of emergency medicine we should be looking at this and going i work for the state this patient has got a cut finger what is the best model of care in emergency medicine that can deal with them and then it would be like oh yeah they need a urgent care service where they need to go because our gps don't suit her anymore can we do this in partnership with our gp partners great let's set them up let me as a ed leader be a leader in this sphere rather than put negative comments about urgent care centers through the college saying i'm going to be the leader for urgent care services i'm going to work with my gp so that we can get the best outcomes for the emergency needs of my population on the other hand if you'll start looking at just have the ed hat on or ed visor on what happens is you look at those patients and go oh god what are they doing in my ed they shouldn't be here why don't they just go off to a gp and i think it's more to do with that exposure and ignorance i think cuz you know when i sit back and look at it why would someone do suturing and spend half an hour and equipment if the only thing they're going to make is 88 dollars out of it it is not a single issue it it is complex but i do think that once you get more and more insight you develop more humility and understand more around what the other people's challenges are what do you think the antidote is i'm sometimes concerned and look i'm affected by this as well it's a contagion this sort of yeah. mode of thinking and if i had to reflect on my own thoughts on the matter in the last 12 months i worry that i'm sort of i'm catching it a little bit it sounds like the antidote is exposure but access to those opportunities is sometimes a privilege and not a inbuilt part of our training and i sometimes wonder if that is the antidote to better understanding the nature of the places in which we work yeah so there are two things there one is yes it is opportunistic yes there are not many of us out there but that actually makes it easier for the first few to get in there the second thing there is though that not to link yourself so much with the outcomes that if you're not getting the opportunity you're going to burn out and is to then look at what are the, a range of different options rather than actually always trying to think that i've got a fixed access block for the department that's my biggest passion in life if you took that on yeah. i think you'd retire for next and without any outcomes right yeah. i'm not saying you could probably get the outcomes but that's the two way of looking at it. it's like 
yes, you want to have the passion to fix something you really want to do and look for the opportunities to seek it out, but also take care of yourself. Make sure that you're not burning yourself out trying to get these outcomes. There's no nothing more valuable than you, you know, for yourself and your family. And I think that's the key to take there. We actively instill a very myopic view of the emergency department as a college. And I think that's something that we could improve on. And I'm interested to know how you think doing something like that might go ahead. Like, do you think it's important to have them talk to business leaders? The first thing the college needs to do is get rid of the, you know, that ED physicians can't work outside hospital settings. Okay. So that's the first legislation they need to change is that we are a bunch of specialists. We should be able to do work anywhere. We should be able to set up our own practice, just like GPs do, just like renal physicians do, just like every other physician does. And that will bring a set of entrepreneurial skills. Because I'm sure if I told you, you invest a million dollars and you look after patients and I will be a lot of patients who will pay $50 to see you get acute interventions done and you would have a lot of private entrepreneurial skills coming up. That's the first thing the college needs to do. The next thing the college needs to do is recalibrate itself to emergency medicine, not just emergency department medicine. It's about looking at a problem from a different lens. Because if you look at low equity patients in ED as the problem, yeah. the only solution is going to be push them out. But if you look at low equity needs of the population, how does emergency medicine meet its needs? You then come up with a totally different solution. So I think framing the problem from the college angle, those are the two things I find are key. Because otherwise, we see ourselves as a truncated career. You're not going to have any new star specialist employed for a while now. That means no one wants to come and work as a registrar. It's a cycle. And then 20 years later, just like the cricket team, right? You have very senior people who are very, very successful for 10 years. And then they hang around for another five years, even though they're unsuccessful. And then when they retire, there's no one to take their spot because no one was inspired to join them because there was no spots coming up. The more we invest in alternate ways of working for our own colleagues, the less likely we are to suffer from burnout and increase more opportunities for our junior consultants to come and work shoulder hand in hand with us and learn more of the system as well. And that's how we will provide exposure. The last thing I would say is probably getting ED physicians to do a GP term to understand how it is to be working on the real flow, which is out there. We do retrieval, we do ambulance, we do everything else, but, you know, GP flow would be another space because, you know, a lot of patient perceived emergencies do occur there as well. And my wife's a GP and uh, it's definitely watching her train yeah. and hearing her stories after a day's work definitely puts my life into context, that's for sure. I just had one last question. I wanted to know, obviously you're an accomplished researcher. How do you find the right research question to ask? I'm a very junior researcher and I have found that you get out what you put in and if you ask a very good question, you will get some very good answers, even from the same batch of data you'll get very good answers if you look at things differently. And certainly going through the exercise of having my papers critiqued and edited, I've found that out. What is your thoughts on that? I think it goes back to that same thing, which is what is it that you're trying to solve? I'll give you an example. So yeah, you know, we're doing a project around patient matrix, which is like an ambulance matrix where patients go. They're at a consulting session where they're doing this saying, okay, we want to design a system. And that they designed the system was to better align capacity with demand. And... Um, the design was based on how many beds are available in which EDs and XYZ. And then the discussion started going around capacity. How do you define capacity? Is it beds or is it staff or is it or is it the back end? And the question was, and I think the key their answer to your question there is to spend a lot of time deciphering what the real question is. 
And I said to them, isn't the real question where, because you also want to include the patient factors before you decide which hospital the patient goes to. So if it's a complex trauma, you need to send it to them. So, but then again, you might be 10 kilometers from one trauma center and 20 kilometers from another trauma center, but you want to get them quicker, seen, not sent to a site soon. So I said, isn't the real problem getting a patient to the spot where they will be best seen? So when you look at this question differently, your solution is totally different as well. So I think that question comes out on not just with research, but in day to day, you know, you might have people come up and say, oh, look, I've got this problem. And when you look at, you dig up in a simple example is when um, you've got respiratory and cardiology teams fighting over a shortness of the breath patient. And you might go, I'm going to admit this patient on respiratory because I've got the admitting rights. You go, yeah, great. You've achieved something because you, you know, you asserted your power. But what is the key problem there? Every couple of days, you've got to have yeah. to fight. The key problem there is that in the back end, once the patient's admitted to cardiology, when you do the cardiology registrar thing, you know you can't yeah. get a respiratory consult yeah. for two days. You can't yeah. shift the patient for two days between cardiology. And... So what is the solution? So if you were to look at it at that real problem state, what you then do is you design the solution around the real question, which is you either have a policy around quick transfer of patients between through a medical superintendent or you have alternate admitting model for these confusing patient groups. Same thing with the research as well. So that, you know, the, as you know, the sepsis AI tool, which, which we, we built already and waiting to go live later this year for Western Sydney. From a tabletop, I was sitting there going, okay, we want to diagnose sepsis. We want to diagnose patients who got sofa score more than two. And then when we spoke to the nurses out the front, they went, oh, I don't care what their sofa score is. I want to know whether they, they're going to die they got to go to ICU and who yeah. is the next one who needs to be seen. When you do that, then the design of research and design of interventions are different. So I think in broader, not just research, but every time you're posed with a question, the first thing you need to ask is, is this the right question? It took me six months of re-editing my articles multiple times to come to that same conclusion. So, oh, don't worry. My first publication went to 21 rounds of revision. <laughs> and it was funny. And that I'd won the college medal for the best research award and I was I took 21 times. <laughs> so sometimes it is about you being able to sell what you think is right. And sometimes it's about actually buying from everyone else and framing the, the right question. So many interesting points brought up. And I want to thank you again for taking the time. I understand you're very busy and for rearranging your calendar to come and meet with me. If you had to speak to someone who's just entering the ED training program, he or she might not know exactly what they want to do with their career, or even if you were to talk to yourself, what would you say? Would you have anything to say to them about the state of the system and how how things are moving forward? I would say this to anyone, not just emergency physicians. I would say that look at the day-to-day life that job entails at this current state and ask yourself if that's exactly what you want to keep doing five days a week for the next 30 years of your life. If the answer is yes, then you're lying to yourself. (laughs) And if the answer to that is no, what are the key aspects of that role that stimulate you? And what are the key aspects of the role that you really despise? Because there's no ideal job in the world. There are, but not, you don't get that perfect match for everyone. And then work on how can you maximize those positive aspects out of your job? And how do you, you know, what are those aspects that you want to really entail on? And I think that's what I would probably say that to my son, even if he did engineering, or I'd say that to anyone else from any other profession as well. 
Awesome. No, thank you for that insight. I really appreciate it. And thanks again for your time.